Well, good evening. Good to see all of you guys, as always. Good to gather together midweek and just kind of regroup and refresh ourselves and to spend some time with the Lord together with the saints. Such a, a sweet time. We're in the book of Daniel as we continue our ascent, our fly over scripture, soaring through scriptures here Wednesday nights. And um, the book of Daniel is where we come to. Book of Daniel, uh, again, I think I probably open up every Wednesday night with saying something along the lines of like, this is a great book, or this is a fascinating book. I think I do that every time because just having, you know, spent time going through it, there's always something in God's word that just is so profound, proficient, that just speaks to us. And, and the book of Daniel is such a, a unique book. It, it really is. Daniel has been, as Chuck Miser said, is the most authenticated book in the Bible. It's fascinating to see just the amount of uh, prophecies, fulfilled prophecies that will be seen as we go through the book of Daniel. Yet, the book of Daniel has been repeatedly attacked and brought into question. People wonder if Daniel really wrote it. Could Daniel have really written it when they say he wrote it? Many thought that nobody could write about future events with such accuracy as did Daniel. So the reason that it was written much later, after all these events took place, there's people today, uh, you know, higher, higher critics or scholars that will still try to proclaim that, yeah, no, you know, we think that Daniel now, after everything's said and done, probably wrote this later on, you know, after these events took place, because he wrote about them with such accuracy. They came to fruition, just as he said, and yet, we never have to doubt that because we know the one that is holding it all together knows the beginning to the end. That's God. And so this is all inspired by God. It's written by God. And so we know if he wants to record something of yet to come, he can do it. And he has and he does. And we see it all fulfilled. Now, what's also settling this for us is that Jesus quoted from Daniel and referred to him as the prophet, not the historian, right? But as the prophet, Daniel, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. So Jesus himself referring to Daniel here. So that's important for us to kind of know and look at. Now, the book of Daniel takes place during the, the exile of, you know, those in Judah. Again, as we've been seeing through these books of prophecy that we're in on our Wednesday nights here, we've been looking at Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Jeremiah and Ezekiel especially were writing during this time of the Babylonian captivity, uh, Jeremiah more so about the impending judgment at the hands of the Babylonians coming against them. Ezekiel is in captivity and he's writing to the captives. And here's Daniel now also, who's in exile in Babylon as he's writing this. So Daniel became a very leading figure in Babylon. He was taken away into captivity at that first you know, sort of attack against Jerusalem and that first group of people that were brought. Remember, there were how many, how many ways of deportation from Jerusalem into Babylon? How many different groups? Anybody remember? Three different ones, right? 605 BC was when Daniel and, and those three Hebrew guys we'll look at here, as well as others were taken in. Seems like they were kind of taking some of the, perhaps the cream of the crop, right? As Babylon's looking to bring some of the, the key guys into their, into their area. And then again in 597 BC and then in 586 BC when Jerusalem was sacked. So those are the three groups that were taken away. Now, 
Again, just asking here, um, David Guzik writing said this, we should ask why such a strong attack against the book of Daniel? Simply because Daniel contains more fulfilled prophecy than any other book in the Bible. In New Testament prophecy, Daniel is referred to more than any other Old Testament book referring to New Testament prophecy. Daniel is one that's referred to more than any other um, Old Testament book. And at times, David Guzik goes on to say, at times, communist governments prohibited preaching from the book of Daniel because it reveals God's knowledge of the future and it shows that in the end, the Lord God and his people win. So that was something, of course, that, uh, you know, communist governments didn't want anybody to hear about, right? So Jerome said this back in... um, you know, early, you know, um, few centuries, it says, I wish to stress that none of the prophets has so clearly spoken concerning Christ as has this prophet Daniel. For not only did he assert that he would come, a prediction common to the other prophets as well, but also he set forth the very time at which he would come. Moreover, he went through the various kings in order, stated the actual number of years involved, and announced before on the clear signs of events to come. There's just so much historical accuracy within the book of Daniel written before it happened that that again like I said some scholars have just had to try to explain it away falsely by saying that you know he wrote it after or uh, just you know not having that faith to believe that when we're talking about history it's all about his story God's story that this is all by the hand of God. And so it's being recorded down for us. It's awesome. It's good. And uh, we're going to be looking at some of these things. Now, here's the way the book of Daniel is, is essentially broken down. Um, chapters 1 to 6 deal with this historical providence of God. And then chapter 7 to 12 is the prophetic preview. Now, though we're going to be seeing some prophecy in the first section, and we'll still see some history in the second section, primarily it's dealing with the historical providence, chapters 1 to 6, and primarily dealing with this prophetic preview in chapters 7 to 12. And so I think we're only going to get through the first half of this here tonight. I was hoping to go through all of Daniel, but then as I'm just kind of going through it, I'm like, man, this is just so so rich, so good. So we're going to probably just uh, break this apart and do it over a couple weeks here. Now, the first six chapters, like I said, deal with that historical setting. In the Hebrew Bible... Interestingly, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Daniel is classified as a historical book. But in our Bible, the book of Daniel falls in that, in that section of prophets and prophecy. That's because the last six chapters deal with that prophetic nature. So we certainly have these really, you know, equal distinctions of this book, you know, history and prophecy. Now, the book of Daniel, as we're going to be going through it, you'll notice it doesn't really follow a, a strict chronological flow. So we're going to be in some chapters dealing with what's going on, then all of a sudden we'll jump to a, a later time, in a sense, in Daniel's life, in another chapter. So it's not following a strict chronological flow, so just keep that in mind as we go through this. Now, interestingly about Daniel, as we're going to see, this guy is just a, a solid individual. There's only a couple people in the Bible that are mentioned that are never are never referred to or there's nothing negative ever spoken about them in God's word. So besides Daniel, does anybody know who the other person is? Shout it out. Joseph, you got it. All right. Interestingly, how Joseph and Daniel were both taken into foreign countries where they became executives and just seeing again God's providence 
at work in their lives. So here's Joseph and Daniel that going through trial. They're in exile. Think about that. Compare that to some situations you go through and, and how often in those tough situations where you just want to kind of yell out, scream out or go, well, this is an excuse now that I don't have to live so perfect because look at my life, it's falling apart. Well, here's Joseph and Daniel going through some pretty heavy stuff, right? And yet staying true to the Lord, nothing negative written about these two. And God raising them up to use them in just some incredible ways. So very, very interesting. Now, in chapter one, we get the starting point for kind of all that is is taking place here um, and kind of the starting point of Daniel's recording of, of history. Look at chapter one, verse one. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. All right, so that's the starting point for all this. It's in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, which we know through history puts us here at 605 BC. All right, 605 BC. And that was a very pivotal point in world history and, and really control with some of these, you know, empires that were, uh, you know, battling together because the Assyrian Empire, which had been the dominant power up until this time, it was kind of waning on, on the decline. They'd attacked and led the northern tribes of Israel away into captivity back in 722 BC. But Babylon now has been that world power that's on the rise. And, and it's interesting how the word of God oftentimes prophesied about this coming world empire Babylon before they were even you know flexing their muscles so God already had this all staged out laid out that this would be this people that he would use as his instruments of judgment even before people saw Babylon as being any kind of threat or worry so Babylon's on the rise Assyria is on the decline and so Babylon's getting stronger and and Babylon comes and attacks Assyria now and Pharaoh Necho and the armies of Egypt they get involved because they don't want Babylon to really have this this world dominance but Nebuchadnezzar he's just a general in the army at this time his father is the king of Babylon at this moment so Nebuchadnezzar comes and he defeats Pharaoh Necho at the battle of Carchemish and so you've heard about that in in history if you've taken history in school you probably heard about this 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 important battle of Carchemish so the victory gave Babylon authority over all of western Asia within the next few years and for this reason, it ranks as one of the most decisive battles of all time. All right? That defeat is even recorded in Jeremiah chapter 46. So as Nebuchadnezzar's driving the Egyptian armies back all the way to the Sinai, he stops at Jerusalem. All right? And Jerusalem, in particular Jehoiakim, they'd been loyal to Egypt. They'd been hoping that Egypt is going to be that ally, that support for them from any other kind of nation coming against them. In fact, Jehoiakim had been appointed by Pharaoh Necho as kind of that sort of puppet king there in, in Jerusalem. So Nebuchadnezzar comes, he's seeking to flex his muscles now, sort of subdue Jerusalem. But as he's there, he gets word that his father, Nabopolassar, has died. So he returns to Babylon to secure his rightful place to the throne, right? And while he's there, Jehoiakim, back in Jerusalem, rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar sends his people back, and this is when they besiege Jerusalem now, all right? At that time, they begin to carry away Jehoiakim and many of the articles of the temple. So this is interesting because this ushered in now a very important prophetic time, known as the time of the Gentiles. 
It's referenced in Luke chapter 21, verse 24. The times of the Gentiles is that extended period of time in which the land given by or in covenant by God Abraham and to his descendants is occupied now by Gentile powers and the Davidic throne is going to be empty of any rightful heir in that Davidic line. So the times of the Gentiles, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar's invasion of Jerusalem in 605 BC, is going to continue all the way through now until the Messiah returns. So we're living in this time of the Gentiles. All right? Recorded, talked about in Luke chapter 21. So this is what's going on right now. This is, a, like I said, a very pivotal point in, in all of world history, essentially. Well, look at verse 3 now of chapter 1. Here's what we read, verse 3. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to... Man, if I had a nickel for every time I heard that about me right there, that's, I'd, I'd still be poor, is what I'm trying to say. I'd still be a very poor man. Um, and he had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Look at verse 6. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Anybody remember in Sunday school, remembering those names? Meshach, Yushach, and to bed we go. Does that, remember that? Everybody have to remember? Okay. For the longest time, I'm like, isn't that the names? Isn't that how? No, it's, it's not totally. Abednego, Meshach. Okay. So among the first groups of people now taken into captivity are these fine young men. Like I said, as they're gathering people in that first deportation from Jerusalem. They're selecting people that they think they're going to be able to, you know, groom and train up. People that seem very, you know, um, on the ball. They're, they're, they're wise, full of understanding. They're, they're good looking. These are people that they think we got to really, you know, get these people to really work for us, to be loyal to us. And so we read there that they're even given some of the delicacies of the king. Just kind of show them, you know, what a, a blessing it is to be in this Babylonian Empire. Be loyal to us and look at what you're going to be enjoying for the rest of your days. You know, so they're kind of really buttering them up. They're really trying to condition them to think that, listen, yeah, you're taken away from your homeland, but look at how good you can have it here. So they're really just, again, trying to help them and, and butter them up to really being successful. They're looking to reprogram them even by changing their names now. See, the Babylonian leaders wanted them to begin to behave and think like a Babylonian. The names were very important in this day. It really represented their identity. And so they're, they're looking to change all of that. Their identity, their roles, their, their positions, their culture. And like I said, in this day, a name was very significant. So here's the names Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means God is favored. Mishael, who is like God, Azariah, Yahweh, itself. But then their names now in, in that Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, Bel's servant, 
Shadrach, illumined by Rock, the sun god. Meshach, who is like Shaq, not the basketball player, but a reference to Venus. And then Abednego, servant of Nego. These are these, these foreign deities, these gods that they're kind of looking to have these, these young men. And, and they're very young men at this time. All right. This isn't Daniel as some adult. Just a teenager, if not younger than that. They're young men right now. And so Nebuchadnezzar wants these boys to begin to forget about their God and their culture and their identity that they once knew and to get that to be replaced with serving the gods of Babylon and to put their trust in, in these deities now. So you can see just kind of this, this reprogramming in a sense taking place. But notice what we see happen. Verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Don't I love that. Daniel purposed in his heart. Daniel saw all that's going on, understanding the, what's at stake and, and what's really taking place here and he purposes in his heart he's he's determined he remains steadfast to say i want to follow god's ways i want to be true to the one true god and not look at following what you guys are looking to follow this really was an already predetermined course of action that daniel was going to live out so many times you know we struggle and fail in difficult situations because we determine what to do in that moment We allow our situations or our circumstances to start to dictate what we're going to do. Yet, character is never made in crisis. It's only revealed in crisis. Daniel, you see, his character was all about, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to stay true to my God. I'm going to purpose in my heart not to allow other things in and, and defile me. And so this was already a predetermined action or, or, or focus of Daniel. This was the character of Daniel that's starting to come out. That's only being revealed in this midst of this difficult situation that he's in. Someone once said, character is always lost when a high ideal is sacrificed on the altar of conformity or popularity. Let me say that again. Character is always lost when a high ideal is sacrificed on the altar of conformity or popularity. See, when given the chance to do the right thing or the popular thing, what do we choose? What are we looking to gravitate to, to move in? I think most people would struggle with that. And so they choose to do the, the popular thing, the less sacrificial thing. But Daniel continues to do what was right before God. And notice what happens here. Look at verse 17. Now, let me just give you a bit of a fill in a little bit of the spaces here that I'm skipping over is that they're allowed to carry on in this way. They're given a 10-day challenge in a sense here. See how you fare. Well, they come back and everybody sees that they're doing better. Having only eight vegetables, not enjoying the delicate. They're actually looking more healthier, stronger. It's It's noticeable. And it's like, wow, that's impressive. Look at verse 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. 
Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Meshach, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding, about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. So Daniel had a very great kind of career there, in a sense, serving under the king in Babylon. He's starting to, again, just this is the hand of the Lord on his life. As Daniel's been faithful to God, God is faithful in Daniel's life, and he's raising him up, elevating him, where the king is looking and saying, man, this, these guys are like 10 times better than all these other people that we've got. The soothsayers, the astrologers, the magicians, the sorcerers, all these people. Like these guys are heads and tails above all the rest of them. Now, chapter 2, this wisdom that God is blessing Daniel with gets put to use. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign... Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king and the king said to them, I've had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Verse 4, then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. So here's the deal. Nebuchadnezzar, he has this dream and it's just left him stressed out, anxious. He's been awoken at night. He's troubled over this. This is something he's like shaken to the core. He realizes this is not just, you know, a bad pepperoni peach the night before. There's significance to this dream. He's realizing there's something about this and he's looking for the interpretation of this. But he wants to find out, you know, not just what it means, but he's looking to kind of weed out some of the people that he's got working for him. Because they'll come and say, oh, well, yeah, we'll interpret the dream for you, boss. Just tell us what the dream is. We'll let you know what it's all about. But the king is starting to realize, I think some of these guys are a bunch of phonies. He started to see the real deal now with Daniel and the other guys, right? He's starting to look at his men and go, I think these guys are a bunch of phonies. I think they're just paying me lip service, telling me what I think I want to hear, right? I mean, it's easy to come and interpret a dream and just tell the person whatever it is, right? You know, and just say, well, here's what the interpretation is. You're going to live a long, healthy life or, you know, um, you're to give me $20 or else you're going to go broke in a year. You know, like you can say whatever you want and it's going to sound legit, right? But now the king is thinking, these guys, I, I, I don't know if I can trust them. I want to see... How good they really I want, I want them to tell me what the dream actually is. Then I'll know that they're really hearing from a, a source that's laying it out for them. Tell me what the dream is. Then I'll know that you're speaking truthfully. Well, all the men are looking at him going, are you kidding me? Are you serious? Like, nobody's ever been able to do that. That's like unheard of. 
You can't do that. Now, we'll get to how this breaks down, but, but let me just notice something there in verse 4. I'm going to take a little sidetrack here for one second. Because it says in verse 4, Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Now, this is interesting because most of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, right? The language of, of the Jew. But we have a few passages in the Bible that are written in Aramaic. It's an ancient language. It was the language of the Babylonians. And it was the common Gentile language that was brought back to Jerusalem after their captivity. It began to be an everyday language for the Jews, while Hebrew was used more as a religious language. Many believe, possibly, that Aramaic is the language that Jesus spoke because it was still in widespread use in his day. Now, there's only a few passages in the Bible that use Aramaic. A, a verse in Jeremiah, a few passages in Ezra. But here in Daniel, now from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to chapter 7, the end of chapter 7, that whole section now is all written in Aramaic. And that's very interesting because it's a Gentile language. And what we're seeing uncovered from chapter 2 all the way to the end of chapter 7 is this whole look at Gentile history. And it's all being written in this Gentile language. It's Gentile history in advance. That's what prophecy is. Pre-written history. God's determined it and God will establish it. That's what prophecy is. Pre-written history. And so here it is now. God's going to be laying out all that's going to be coming in, in dealing with this kind of Gentile world and Gentile power, in a sense. He's going to lay out all that's going to be coming. And so here's this whole section now written in Aramaic, kind of interesting. Now, getting back to the dream. Daniel now, all the men that Nebuchadnezzar's got around them, they're all going, yeah, boss, we can't, we can't tell you what you dreamt. Nobody's been, nobody can do it. You've got to tell us you know, what it is that you... Isn't it funny some of the psychics and stuff that, you know, are making a living on trying to read into what's gone in your life? Don't you wonder, like, if these guys were really true and genuine, why aren't they, you know, buying all the lottery tickets and just making a fortune on the lottery? They should know then, right, what the winning numbers are going to be if they're truly... Anyways, why? Okay, that's a sidetrack there. But So, Daniel's called in now. And once again, he's shown favor by the king because the king grants him some time to go and seek interpretation. The other guy said, ask the king, give us a bit of time. Give us a bit of time. The king said, no, if you can't tell me what the dream is right now, forget it. And they start kind of wiping out all these, you know, psychics and astrologers. and They start wiping them out. Daniel's on the list to be taken on. He's one of these guys, but he gets brought into the king and he's again shown favor by the king. Just the hand of the Lord upon his life. Daniel says, give us some time. We'll go and pray about this. Talk this through with my, my boys here, my, my other three Hebrew companions. And, and so they're allowed to do that. And as Daniel and his three Hebrew friends seek the Lord, he's given the dream and the interpretation. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. Then, uh, chapter 2, verse 19. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I oh, had yeah, just such a great passage. Just seeing again how Daniel is realizing that it's the Lord's hand that 
changes time seasons, removes kings, raises up another. And that's what we're going to be seeing essentially in this dream. So the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, as we'll see here, was of this great statue. Nebuchadnezzar is given the statue. It's made up of different materials. Look at chapter 2, verse 32. Verse 32. This, uh, start in verse 31 actually. Go to verse 31. You, O king, were watching and behold a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and its form was awesome. So this is Daniel revealing what the dream is to King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 32. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while the stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. So this vision now, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel is revealing to him, sharing with him, is, a, is this course of four Gentile kingdoms and world powers. Daniel goes on to say in verse 36 and 38, he says there that you are this head of gold. So the head of gold is referencing Babylon. And they were in power essentially from 605 to 539 as this world power, this, this dominant empire at the time. And then he goes on to say in verse 39 that after you shall arise another kingdom. Medo-Persia. That's that chest and arms of silver. And again, possibly the, the two arms are reflecting the, the two parts of that kingdom or empire, the Medes and the Persians, present-day Kurds and Iranians. A third kingdom of bronze is Greece. They were that, that strong leading empire from 331 to 168. And then the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. And that's speaking of Rome. Now, the two legs perhaps representing that eastern and western empires of Rome. Verse 41 says, Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. Now it's interesting because from the head downward... The image was made of materials that were of decreasing value, but of increasing strength. So you start with gold, highest value, but then as you move down, you get to the iron, which is the least valuable, but the stronger of the materials. Until you get to the feet where weakness and deterioration now is setting in, because it's that feet of, mixed with iron and clay, so there's some deterioration that's beginning to set in. Now what's interesting is that each of these kingdoms replaced one another. However, Rome has never truly been defeated or taken over by another world power. They just kind of fizzled out. That's kind of interesting. And since the fall of Rome, there hasn't been another world-encompassing empire. Ambitious men have come onto the scene and they tried. They try to be the next world-leading empire or ruler, Charlemagne, Napoleon, even Hitler. But all of them have failed. Yet the Bible predicts that a final world domineering or dominating empire is going to come, the feet of iron and clay. Obviously, this final empire is still future. Nebuchadnezzar sees it as a mixture of iron and clay. And that would be speaking of this revived Roman empire, a Roman revival. 
Because it's mixed with that iron, like the legs were, speaking of Rome, but there's a mixture of clay. There's some other substances to it. The clay, humanity in general, thus this last empire reflects either the boundaries or demographics of ancient Rome tied together in a loose, uh, loose alliance with other nations. It's amazing that such a, a political configuration is, is forming over the last number of years. I mean, we've been watching on the, uh, on the you know, world landscape and, and, and political maneuvering, what's going on. And, and never before, like in our day, have we begun to see how these things that Daniel has been laying out for us could really, you know, come together. We've seen nations. We've seen, um, you know, the, the European Union or the Western European Union, you know, coming together. We've seen all these things that have started to happen where you can see this revived Roman Empire taking shape. So, the scope of the king's dream in Daniel's interpretation is really quite mind-boggling. It traces the Gentile nations from Nebuchadnezzar to the very last days. Daniel 2 is one of the most amazing prophecies in all of Scripture. To see that, you can look back and go, how Daniel wrote this and to see how that all came true exactly as it was said. Now there's an emphasis on the 10 toes as well. And the number 10 is significant as it's mentioned again in Daniel 7 and also in Revelation chapter 17. It's very likely that that's speaking of the 10 nations that are going to come together and form that you know coalition of nations along with the Antichrist, we'll talk a bit about that here in Daniel. And again, these, these perhaps 10 nations that are going to form that, that Roman revived empire. The stone is also mentioned, as we read there in, in verse 34 of chapter 2. And there's a stone that's mentioned that's going to come and it's going to break that statue and break any strength of human government. Now, that stone or that rock is ultimately speaking of Christ. Psalm 118 verse 22 refers to Christ as that. Isaiah 8, 14, Isaiah 28, 16. And when he comes at a second coming, guess what's going to happen? When Jesus comes back, where all these nations are gathering together against God and, and against God's people, well, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to smash and bring to nothing all of these nations that are conspiring and coming together. It's going to be gone. And that's what Daniel sees in that dream of Nebuchadnezzar's. This rock is going to come and bring an end to man's government and usher in God's government. That reign of Christ, that millennial reign, the thousand year reign of Christ where he's going to establish this kingdom here on earth. How glorious it's going to be. Jesus the rock is going to do just that. And Nebuchadnezzar is getting a glimpse of that. It's amazing. It's causing him to be troubled, to shake. For us, man, that's our great hope. That's the reality for us. That's what we look forward to, to know that whatever our kingdoms might do, whatever our governments might do, we know that there's still one higher that wins in the end, right? So good. So this is what all of history and world events are essentially moving towards. Now, at the end of chapter 2, Daniel and his three friends are, are promoted they're, they're becoming well-respected by the king. Daniel's made the ruler over the whole province of Babylon now. Chapter 2, verse 48 tells us that. That's amazing. 
Just like Joseph, right? Daniel's now made ruler over the whole of the Babylon province. The king even has a moment of recognition of the one true God. But not going to last. Not going to last too long for Nebuchadnezzar here. Chapter 3. 16 years have passed now from what we just have been looking at. Daniel's getting older. Nebuchadnezzar has grown both in, in power and in pride. Nebuchadnezzar starts to kind of get a little bit comfortable with his role and desiring a little bit more, you know, recognition, accolades, praise. So what Nebuchadnezzar does is he builds a huge statue. Many believe it's probably a statue of him. Where he orders now that all people, when the music begins to play, have to bow down and worship this statue. And those that don't, what happens to them? Somebody? Fiery furnace. They get thrown in the... This is the famous story that we hear about. Book of Daniel. Every time you hear Daniel, you think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And Daniel and the lion's den. These are the things that come up. Well, that's the order given now by Nebuchadnezzar here in chapter 3. Well, the three Hebrew boys certainly aren't buying into this. The music plays. They're not bowing down. They're not worshiping this idol. And they get found out. So Nebuchadnezzar is in a rage. He's just so, you know, a number of years back, he's ready to glorify God and say, yep, that's the one true God there. And now he's flying in a rage when people aren't bowing down and worshiping him. So look at chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Then, uh, let me just stop right there. Look at these three guys here. Look at, look at again the resolve we saw in chapter 1 that Daniel purposed in his heart. Well, these three are following that same character, heart, and purpose. He's saying, listen, we're not gonna, we don't need to answer you, Nebuchadnezzar. We're, we're just not going to bow down. This isn't who we are. We serve the one true God. And, and they believe that God could rescue them, but they didn't even believe that he had to. Because notice what they say there. They say, our God whom we serve in verse 17 is able to deliver us. But then in verse 18, but if not, even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, we're not, we're not going to follow your gods. They're like, basically that point where they're saying, God, our lives are yours. So whatever you need to do with us, whether you spare us or not, our lives are yours. Use us for your purpose and glory. Isn't that, isn't that exactly how we should be living our lives? See, too often we get in this place where we think, well, if I'm living my life for God, then everything should like, just go hunky-dory. And when it doesn't, we're like, God, what's happening? You're supposed to be on my side here. You're supposed to be helping me. But sometimes God has purposes through the trials, the pain and the difficulty. He's got purposes. We'll, we'll see as we move along here. But sometimes God's plans, 
may differ from your own desires. But our upward call in Christ Jesus is always to yield to him and live in a manner where he gets the glory through our lives. You know, the greatest miracle is not always a change of circumstances, but rather a faith that sustains us in the face of trying circumstances. So the boys here are bound. They're fire bound. Nebuchadnezzar orders the furnace to get turned up seven times hotter than normal. Now, it's a furnace, right? And a furnace means it's hot. So then it goes seven times hotter. That's like ridiculous, right? And it says that they're thrown into the fire. And notice what happens. Look at verse 22. Chapter 3, verse 22. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning fire furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound in the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king, yeah. Well, look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Wow, how cool is that? Now Nebuchadnezzar, he knows there's three men that are thrown in the fire and they're thrown in bound. But now he sees not three men, but four men, not bound, but loose, he says. These guys were set free in the fire. Notice that. That's just how it often is for us. See, the Lord doesn't send us through trials to make us suffer, but ultimately to make us better. There's a refining process that takes place in our lives when we go through times where we're tried and tested. There's a refining work that God does not to hurt us or punish us, but to make us better. And they often provide an opportunity to see the Lord more clearly. How cool is that that as they're in the, in the fire, they're joined by a fourth person. And Nebuchadnezzar says, it looks like the Son of God. How does he know? I don't know. But there's something there about this fourth person. Many believe it's the angel of the Lord. In other words, this pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ there with them. Certainly Jesus can deliver us from difficulty. But there will be times he allows us to go through them to experience his presence and strength all the more as he sustains us through it. Do you hear that? We're, we're always, and you've heard me say, we're always quick to say, Lord, get me out of this trial. But sometimes we need to ask the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to get out of this trial? What is it that you want to teach me? Help me, Lord, to just see you even more clearly in the midst of it. And it's often in those times that we'll have a greater understanding, awareness, a a, a more fuller experience with the Lord as we see Him walk through and take us through these times. And through it, Nebuchadnezzar once more has a desire to honor God. It's interesting because at the end of chapter 15, as he's laying out this, this order about anybody that doesn't, you know, bow down and worship, get thrown in the fire. He says at the end of verse 15, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? That's Nebuchadnezzar. That's Nebuchadnezzar thinking, 
who could ever possibly... It's kind of funny because what Nebuchadnezzar is ultimately saying is that I'm more powerful than any of your gods, right? Who's the God that can deliver you from my hands? He's realizing how futile their gods are, right? But then look at what we see happening now at, at the end of verse 29. Um, let's just read all of verse 29. Therefore... I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made in ashes, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Isn't that great? Nebuchadnezzar, one moment, saying, what God can deliver you from my hand? Now he's realizing, oh man, there's no other God who can deliver like this. That's so awesome. And so he makes that decree now that any person who speaks out against the God of these Hebrew men would perish. Kind of the exact opposite of what our government does, right? Anybody that speaks on behalf of God is going to have to perish. That's kind of what we're dealing with. But here for a moment, Babylon's experiencing quite a revival. Everybody speaks out against this God, they're going to perish. That would be pretty neat if we had a government that did that. Now, in chapter 4, we see Nebuchadnezzar continuing this cycle of kind of honoring God, then honoring self. He's kind of flip-flopping back and forth on these things. He's all over the place. Most times, he recognized God's majesty, but failed to make that a, a personal acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. He saw the awesomeness of God, but he wasn't ready to surrender to God's sovereignty in these things. So in this chapter... Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is given another dream. Chapter 4, it's a dream of a large tree that reaches up to the heavens. And it provided great shade for all those under it. But then an angel came down out of heaven calling for this tree to be cut down and all of its branches, leaves, and fruit stripped. And so Daniel, once again, he's called in to interpret for the king what this dream is and, and lets him know. Daniel lays it out. says, King, this tree represents you you become very strong but you're also going to be cut down so daniel urges him to repent and get his life right with god god even gave nebuchadnezzar 12 months time to begin to just to exercise that repentance to turn to Lord 12 months time but it didn't happen look at verse 30 of chapter 4 The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for myself? Or from... Yeah, sorry, I missed my spot there. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? And while while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And that very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Nebuchadnezzar, 
turned into basically just a, a wild man. Insane. Just the kingdom stripped from him. His own sanity stripped from him. Why? Because he began to be filled with this pride. The motto here is, if you choose not to walk in humility, God's going to help you out with that. (laughs) Sometimes it's not going to be very pleasurable. How much better it is for us to humble ourselves and allow him to lift us up. Because if we're choosing to do like Nebuchadnezzar and start to boast and be prideful, then the Lord has ways of bringing us down and bringing that humility to us. So Nebuchadnezzar experiences kind of insanity, this, this wild time, living out like an animal in a sense. And once Nebuchadnezzar began to recognize again that God is the one who truly reigns supremely and sovereignly over the land, well, then he was appointed back to being king. Seven, seven years, I believe, it, it took. But seven years, that, that throne was kind of left vacant, um, wasn't usurped fully. Nebuchadnezzar continues on to reign there after that time. I think I got those dates right, but correct me if I'm wrong. Not right now, but later. Okay. Now, in chapter 5, here's where we get, begin to see a little bit of, again, chronological, you know, um, not, not in a chronological flow, because chapter 5, we jump ahead a little bit now to see Babylon's downfall. Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, He's ruling on the throne at this point, and he followed in the footsteps of his predecessors, meaning that he was a man prone to pride. Now, Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 BC after ruling for 43 years. The ensuing years of Babylonian history, till its overthrow by by Cyrus in 539 BC, they were marked by progressive deterioration, intrigue, and murder. From one king killing off the next you know, successor to the throne, to somebody else rising up and taking them out. It just went back and forth till eventually we come to Belshazzar, who is the grandson. He's had uncles on the throne, his own father. They've been taken out. And so here's Belshazzar now. Throughout history, there were no records that mentioned a Belshazzar ruling in Babylon. And many of them even questioned the authenticity of the book of Daniel. That is until recent history when the cylinder of Nabonidus, uh, how do you say that? Nabonidus? Am I about right? Nabonidus? Okay. There you go. Thanks, honey. That's great. Making my wife laugh back there. It's not, not hard. I give her lots of material. Okay. At my expense, yeah. Uh, and so that cylinder discovered, right? There it mentioned the co-regency of that. <laughs> you can read it right there, right? Okay. So, What's interesting is we have secular history backing up the word. Rather, we should say, it's the word of God that's always confirming secular history. Now, at this point in time, the Medo-Persian army has been gaining ground in the Babylonian empire. They've been on the move. They're taking territory for themselves. They're, they're in action here. And it's believed that they're laying siege even to the city here where, where Belshazzar is throwing this party. Even at that very night, they're kind of right there, ready to go. All of which now seems like Belshazzar is just sort of flexing his political muscles, showing his 
contempt for the enemies around the city as though he's just kind of saying, what are you guys going to do? You guys got nothing on us. You're not going to be able to come against us here. You're not going to be able to do anything against us. So he's like saying, we're just going to sit here and live it up. We're going to have a party because we're not worried about you. You're no threat to us. This is just that kind of pride of Belshazzar that we're seeing here. And then it was a way for him to kind of, again, pass on that sort of confidence and assurance to the rest of the city to let them know, listen, we don't have to worry about any threat on the outside. Now, Babylon was built with this incredible fortress-like structure, 90-foot walls. Some of the walls were so wide that they would do like chariot races around the city walls on the top. Like It was just so huge that people thought, this is impenetrable. Nobody's going to be able to get in here. So Babylon was a, a significant city here. But interestingly, as they're partying now, as Belshazzar is sitting here feeling fortified and secure so nobody's going to be able to do anything, suddenly he sees the writing on the wall. And literally. Because in chapter 5, this is where we get that saying, the writing on the wall. Right? He sees this mysterious hand begin to write there. And and it freaks him out. He's, he's knowing that this is of significance to him. Though he doesn't understand what's actually being said at the time. I mean, he's freaked out. Look at verse 6. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. That's quite a description, isn't it? All right. I don't want to know what that exactly means, that his joints of his hips were loosened. I think I know what it means. I'm, I'm afraid to ask, but it's not good, I'm sure. And uh, his knees are knocking. So this guy is, is freaked out. He's troubled. There's this kind of conviction setting in right now. And again, none of the astrologers, soothsayers, magicians, none of them know what, what it was that was written on the wall by this hand as described there in, in, um, in, in verse 5. So once again, Daniel is, rem- is remembered and he's brought in. So Daniel comes in, he begins to remind Belshazzar of all the shortcomings of Nebuchadnezzar. All the things that Nebuchadnezzar did that kept kind of keeping him falling short of what God ultimately had. And, and he basically lays out for him that, well, look at verse 22. In chapter 5, verse 22, Daniel says, But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. You knew everything about, and he says his son, which is really meaning your ancestor, your in this in this passage here, speaking of his ancestors, is which is his grandfather. You knew all this. You knew what Nebuchadnezzar had done, how he lived his life. You knew all this, but you have not allowed that to impact you or change you. So Daniel lays out what is written. Look at chapter five, verse twenty-five. And this is the inscription that was written: "Many, many tell a parson." This is the interpretation of each word: "Many." means God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Teko, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez means your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Basically, the writing on the wall for Belshazzar was that his life has been numbered and has been judged and it is lacked. It's been found wanting. And now his life and his kingdom is going to be taken from him. Gonna be divided. That's what the interpretation is of that writing on the wall. And look at verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, 
was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. That very night, Belshazzar one moment is living it up, partying it up, thinking nothing's going to happen to us. But in the end, his life had been weighed, judged, found wanting. And it would be required of him. Life would be taken. That very night, God's word was fulfilled swiftly and surely. God's word is always reliable and true. And there was also fulfillment of, again, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, wasn't it? The statue he saw spoke of the Babylonian kingdom that would be supplanted by that Medo-Persian empire. And here we see it happening, just as it says, Darius, now the Mede, receives the kingdom. And Darius the Mede was actually more of a sub-king under Cyrus, the Persian king, because Cyrus is the one that's really credited with defeating the Babylonians. Now, here's how they did that. It's interesting because they came in, they rerouted the, the Euphrates River that was coming into the city under the city wall. So they, they, they dammed it up so they could come under the foundation of the, of the city, under the walls. The Babylonians thought they were secure, but they failed to realize that their very foundation was shaky. And it's so important that we have our lives built upon the sure foundation of God's word. We might think that everything's going well on the, on the outside, but what's happening in the foundation? Are you building your life truly upon the word of God? Allowing that to strengthen you from the very core, the very foundation of your life. Don't leave any cracks open where the enemy can get in. And this is where Belshazzar failed to realize the potential there. So in chapter 6, we see that Babylon now, under new owners, all right? The Medo-Persians are now the, the ruling empire, basically, here. Darius has a lot of ground overseas. So what he does is he selects these various you know, leaders in various provinces. They're called satraps, and there's 120 of them. Then he's got three governors that are going to be kind of over these 120 satraps. So there's, um, there's 40 for each governor. Am I doing my math right? You know, I'm not good at math, so... Um, and Daniel is one of the governors. But the rest of these, these you know, leaders are not really too keen on seeing Daniel continue to be sort of elevated to this position. They're not digging Daniel too much. So they come up with this plan to, you know, get him sort of trapped and in trouble. So look at what we read in chapter 6, verse 7. All the the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. So we know the story. Daniel gets busted. They're like, oh, look at that. Daniel's not following along with this, with this decree here now. He's petitioning other gods. He's petitioning the one true God, but they got him busted now. And so Darius, he's not happy. Daniel's already gained that respect of Darius. Darius isn't happy about it, but once the decree was signed, 
It could not be altered. Even if it was by the king, he couldn't change it. We see that happening in some of the other you know, books of the Bible that we read about when there were decrees sent out for the people returning back to Jerusalem. Some of the things that were signed, they couldn't alter it. And so Darius is upset. He knows he's got to carry this out and put down in the lion's den. And as he takes him there and puts him in, he's just saying, Daniel, may your God spare you in this. He's trusting and hoping that God's going to be good. And so Daniel's placed in the lion's den. Darius has a very restless night. He's, he's concerned for Daniel. He's upset that he had to do this. And he goes running to the lion's den early in the morning now. And he calls out to Daniel. Look at verse 20 of chapter 6. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, Oh king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O oh king, I have done no wrong before you. We just had a great night here together with the lions. I mean, Daniel's just, just having a great time. Hanging out with the lions. Nobody's touched him. Right? It's so cool. Now, it's interesting because some try to explain this away and say, well, it must have been the, the lions were just fed before Daniel got thrown in there. You know, they weren't hungry. They left him alone. Maybe they were sleeping all night. But notice what we see happen. It says there, um, let's see, verse 2. Where is this here now? 24? And the king, there we go, thank you. And the king gave the command... And they brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast him in the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. So then you got a bunch of well-fed tiger, or lions that left Daniel alone. Well, as soon as the other men, the conspirators, the accusers, were, they didn't even hit the ground before the lions just mauled them and devoured them. So, I mean, this is nothing but the hand of God, again, protecting his servants in that moment. Just love it. God, so good. Just the whole book of Daniel just showing again, God in control of all affairs that are going on in the world, whether it be through whole world empires or individuals that are just serving him. God has his hand upon them, leading and directing and guiding and and in control of all these things. So we're going to end it right there here tonight. And Next week, we'll pick it up in chapter 7. That's the first half of the book of Daniel, really dealing with kind of that historical aspect where we look at a a number of things that are going on that we've seen fulfilled in history. Chapter 7 on, we're going to look at some fascinating prophecies that are going to be laid out for us. So we'll pick it up there next time.